the Book of Judges, a dark time in Israel's history, a pattern of failure, failure to follow God's law, failure to train up the next generation, failure to remember and celebrate God's faithfulness. We may be tempted to see the judges as heroes of the faith. However, the only hero of this story is God himself. The people of God chose the pleasures of sin over the promises of God. And the story of Judges is our story as well. In a desperately wicked and fallen world, the book of Judges reveals both the disgrace of sin and the deliverance only God can provide. Well, the individual stories of Judges have finished. Those famous stories of the disgrace of sin and the famous stories of the deliverance of God in the book of Judges are over. For 16 chapters, we've witnessed God's people rebel, fall into idolatry and apathy, and for 16 chapters, we have watched God miraculously deliver them each and every time. The days of Gideon, Deborah, Barak, Samson are now behind us, and all that's left are five more chapters with one clear and graphic purpose. To ensure we don't miss the wickedness of human hearts and the hopelessness of a society that's turned its back on God. These last five chapters are often described as the most graphic and disturbing chapters in all of Scripture. But they have a purpose. To help us recognize what happens with the disgrace of sin. I want to invite you to join me in the book of Judges, chapter 17 where we begin these five chapters with an alarming truth. That the struggle these people have, it's not because of political issues, financial issues, social issues, or cultural issues. The foundation of the issues is spiritual. The first two chapters, what we're going to witness is the disgraced religion. It begins this way, Judges chapter 17, verse 1. It says, There is a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. He said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver which were taken from you about what you uttered a curse in my hearing. Behold, surprise, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. He then returned the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord. Let's pause there for a moment. Again, we're faced with 1,100 pieces of silver, roughly 28 pounds of silver, roughly 110 years of wages for the average wage earner. This is a lot of money, even in California standards. Micah takes it from his mother, 
His mother utters a curse. Micah somehow feels guilty. He somehow feels concerned about it, so he confesses to his mom, Mom, it was me, I took it, and gave the silver back to her. And the mom said, Wow, God, this is amazing. Mom forgives him and takes that 1,100 pieces of silver, 28 pounds of silver, 110 years of wages, says, I'm going to give it to the Lord. And we begin chapter 17 thinking, oh my gosh, maybe there's revival. Like God's at work, finally something good's going to happen in Judges, right? We have such hope, but then we keep going. She says, I was wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a graven image, a molten image. Now, therefore, I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith who made them into a graven image and a molten image. And they were in the house of Micah. There is suddenly, after so much hope, so much maybe something great was going to happen, we come up with this disgraced religion at home. Like somehow this mom thinks she's honoring God. I'm going to forgive my son. I'm going to set, give 110 years worth of wages to God. And here's how I'm going to honor God. I'm going to have idols made. I'm giving my son. It gets better. Look at verse 5. The man Micah had a shrine he made an ephod and household idols and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. And not only do we see now this mom with this kind of bizarre faithfulness to God, but now we have her son, Micah, he has a shrine. If you're not familiar with the shrine, it's a house set aside just for his idols. He has a shrine, a house Filled with household idols, household idols, idols worship part of uh, idols that were set up to worship ancestors, icons to worship and remember aspects of history that we celebrate, a whole house filled with these idols. And he made an ephod. If you remember, he's not the first. Gideon made an ephod. Ephod's that cloak at the high priest wore. They wore to be the mouthpiece of God. But it's all the rage now to have your own ephod. So you can turn God into some cosmic genie that you can speak for him and ask for him. All of a sudden we see this house. You have this mom who thinks she's faithful to the Lord. You have Micah who has a shrine filled with idols. They take all this money and just add more. And just to help you understand how far off this is, put your thumb in Judges. Let's flip over Deuteronomy chapter 12. Flip to the left, two books. Deuteronomy chapter 12. I want to make sure you understand the standards that God gave the people before they went into the promised land. You know, maybe you're thinking, well, Brian, that's not fair. Maybe Micah's mom didn't know. Maybe Micah didn't know. 
Listen to the words of God. Deuteronomy chapter 12, starting at verse 1. It said, These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land with the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given to you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars, burn their ashram with fire, and you shall cut down the engraved images of their God, obliterate their name from that place. Verse 4, look at this. You shall not act like this towards the Lord your God. First thing you do when you go into the promised land, get rid of idolatry. And you don't act like that. Everything you witness of their worship, the false gods, you don't do that. God continues, verse 5, but instead you seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling. And there you will come. There you will bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your free will offerings, the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There also your household shall eat before the Lord your God, rejoice in all your undertaking, which the Lord your God has blessed you. God says, when you go on, not only are you going to take out all of their idolatry and all their worship practices, I'm going to set up my own. I'm going to have one place where I dwell. And you come to me, God says. You don't set up your convenient places at your house. You come to me. You bring your offerings to me. You come to my house. Not only that, but you're all going to come together. There's going to be community. This commitment to the Lord, it's not private. It's corporate. It's all of us together. God doubles down. Look at verse 8. He says this, You shall not do at all what you are doing here today. Stop it. Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. You don't get to choose for yourself. You're my people, God says. You're my priests, my holy nation, a people for my choosing and my ministry. You don't do life your way. You do life my way. And look at the warning in verse 13. It says, be careful. You do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see. You don't get to worship God the way you want to. Be careful you don't come up with some hybrid thing. But in the place which the Lord chooses in one of your tribes... There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command. God is very clear. God's residence at this time was in Shiloh. You want to worship God, you go to Shiloh. When it's time to give offerings, you go to Shiloh. You go to that place. You don't get to set up things in your own home. No shrines, no graven images, no idolatry. Even if you're well-intended, even if you're trying to please the Lord with uh, 110 years of wages, you don't do things on your own. 
Micah got even further, made Nephod household idols. Look at the end of verse 5. He consecrated one of his sons. The term consecrate doesn't mean he just gives him a title. He blesses him as a priest, fills him with the power of God in his own image to be the voice of God in the family's life. We look at this, we say, how, how can a family drift so far off? I mean, how can this family fall so short? I mean, how can this family just have such a weird and disturbed image? How'd their religious practice get so messed up? Look at verse 6. In those days, there is no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Man, what happened in those days? There's no king, and people turned that into a political statement. Hey, there wasn't a Christian authority. I want to make sure you understand this is not a political statement. There was no authority, there is no ruler. This isn't political. Is spiritual. And we've seen it coming throughout the study of Judges, haven't we? When they entered into the promised land in Judges 1 or 2, God was their king. God was their ruler. Remember the promises. God said, I will go before you. you if you're faithful to me, you won't experience any failure. Everyone will experience the love of a family. There will be no grave disease Everyone will have success in life. All you have to do is follow me. I'll go before you. I'll fight your battles. But within two generations, a generation arose that did not know God or the work of his hands. Idolatry started to creep into culture. There were times of rebellion and renewal, rebellion and renewal. But you remember the time of Judges chapter 15, the days of Samson. Is their worst judgment yet? Darkest times of the people yet? Look what they said, Judges 15, 11. I have it on the screen here. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? Hey, God's done. God's abandoned us. He's finished with us. They're rulers over us now. They're our authority. I mean, they quit on God. They walked away from God. They were finished with God. What happened to this household? This is what happens when people turn their back on God. We look at it. We look at this household. We think, how sad. But I was preparing this week, I was wondering, how much better are we, you think? I mean, there's no ruler. It says every man did what was right in his own eyes, that term right. Every man sets their own, their own morality. 
their own spiritual boundaries, their own strategies for life. I mean, when there's no God in charge, when there's no directives, everyone just sets their own framework for life. I was wondering, I wonder how different we are. George Barna, the Barna Foundation, did a survey recently of Christian parents. Listen to their top two needs. Top two needs Christian parents, parents at church have in their life. Number one need. Number one need. Top need of Christian parents is instruction on how to raise kids in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Number one thing parents have in church. Man, I, I, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to raise my children in the knowledge of God. I don't know how. You want to know what their top two, their second top concern is? Second largest need is instruction on how they can know and follow the Lord. These are Christian church-going people. Man, Brian, we don't know how to practice faithfulness to the Lord ourselves, and we don't know how to lead our children to do the same. I don't want to blame. I don't want to judge. I just want to ask. Do you think we have disgraced religion in our homes? Do you think we as a home, in your home and in mine, do we know how to pursue God? Do we know how to direct and instruct our children to do the same? Here's a quote from Barna at the end of his research. said this, we have found that parents must have an authentic and vibrant faith in order to provide meaningful spiritual guidance to their children. Children rarely embrace spiritual principles and practices that their parents fail to demonstrate in their own lives. If we want a different result in our homes and our culture than people of God experience in times of judges, first thing we need to do is fix our faith at home. Story continues, though. After we have disgraced religion at home, we, we step into hope. Look at verse 7. Now, in the midst of all of that mess, it means in the midst of that disgraced and kooky home, verse 7, there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, a Levite, a man of God, a servant of God, a man of the cloth, is a Levite. He was staying there. And then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem and Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm going to stay wherever I may find a place. All of a sudden, Micah, you have this messed up, disgraced home. He's got a shrine. He has idolatries. He's uh, consecrating his son to be the priest, like everything's great, everyone's doing right in their own eyes, we're alarmed, and suddenly he comes face to face with a pastor. And you're like, yes! This spiritual leader's gonna step right in and correct Micah, set him straight. Man, that's what Micah needs. He needs to go to church. He needs to talk to a pastor. Look what happens, verse 10. Micah then said to him, Dwell with me, stay with me, be a father and a priest to me. I'll give you 10 pieces of silver a year, suit of clothes, and all your maintenance, all your needs. I'll supply for you. 
So the Levi went in. The Levite agreed to live with the man. The young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated the Levite. The young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Man, that one little sliver of hope, maybe the pastor's going to come in and right the ship. The pastor just settled right in. Yeah, I'll, I'll manage your shrine for you. I'll be your priest for you. Micah consecrated the Levite, and the young man became his priest, lived in the house of Micah. And I'm reading that, and I'm thinking, man, there's just so much wrong with that passage. Levites were called by God to be his people. We already recognized from the first time that, that the center of worship was supposed to be in Shiloh, the presence of God. They weren't supposed to have these little private centers. Everyone was supposed to come together. But there's another concern now. Now you have the Levite. Let's go back to Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 18. Flip back two chapters to the left where God teaches us about the Levites and the priests. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Listen to this. It says this. Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 1. The Levitical priest, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire in his portion. They shall have no inheritance among their countrymen. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. Now this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those who offer a sacrifice, either an ox or a sheep, or which they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. And you shall give him the first fruits of your grain and your new wine, your oil, the first shearing of your sheep. For the Lord your God has chosen him, his sons from all the tribes to stand and serve in the name of the Lord forever. Verse 6, now if a Levite comes from any of your towns throughout Israel where he resides, shall serve the name of the Lord his God, like all his fellow Levites who stand before him. Book of Numbers says this, Numbers chapter 18, verse 21, the sons of Levi, behold, surprise, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance. In return for their service, which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting, for the tithe of the sons of Israel, which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said concerning them, they shall have no inheritance among the people of God. God was a unique inheritance for the Levites. He was their sustenance. He was their provision. He was their focus. He was the significance of the calling. When the nation of Israel had homes focused on God, God used them to sustain the dwelling place of God and to care for his priests and his Levites. Most people believe, though, that during the time of Judges, when the religious apathy started taking over the people, they stopped going to Shiloh. They stopped bringing their offerings. Stopped bringing their first fruits. And then priests and Levites had to find a means for caring for themselves. Instead of focusing on their calling, they became spiritual mercenaries for hire. Jumping from shrine to shrine, serving people for pay. 
And look at the impact of that. Verse 13. Armed with his shrine, his idols, his household idols, his Levite as a priest, Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as a priest. Now I know God's happy with me. I have my private house of worship. I have all my idols set up. I have my quote-unquote man of God working with me. Now I know God's for me. I have a man of God in charge of me. I'm giving all my money to God in my own way. Now I know I'm right with God. We not only live in a time now in Judges, we see disgraced religion at home, but now we see disgraced religion in leaders as well. Where the people that God called to be his truth tellers, his shepherds, the servants of his people, become mercenaries for hire, telling people what they want to hear for money. reading this week thinking this week anyway do you think we as a culture today hold our leaders accountable do you think we hold our leaders to the standards that God does man to leaders to pastors to elders leaders of the church do we hold ourselves to the standard that God has I got to tell you, I see pastors jumping from quote-unquote call of God to call of God to call of God. It always drives them, calls them to larger churches closer to the beach. It's ironic how that happens. <laughs> Rarely does God ever call a church, a pastor, from a big church to a poor church in rural Kansas. Rarely do I see it. I wonder... Do we hold our spiritual leaders to the standard that God calls them? Elders of this church, do we hold ourselves to that level as well? I wonder if we need to be careful of the spiritual leaders we allow to influence our hearts, in our homes. We tend to give people who can attract a crowd open season to our soul. In the days of Judges, it was a time of disgraced homes when it came to religion. Their leaders were struggling. And I was thinking this week, you know, I wonder if we're starting to see some of that now. I've always struggled with this passage, Matthew 7. I've shared it with you before. Listen to this. This is the words of Jesus. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles? Hey, God, didn't we do stuff? 
And then I will declare to them, I will never knew, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Here's the thing that troubles me. How can good people who claim to love God think they're right with God and not be? Jesus says, look, when I return, there's going to be all sorts of people who are shocked that they're not right with God. And I look at that and I think, how can that be? Happened in Judges 17. If a household in complete rebellion to the plan of God, thinking that God's pleased with them, you have a Levite who is called to serve God, to shepherd them in the way of God's plan. At the end of that, they think they're great. That caused me to go back to Matthew 7. Like, how you think it's possible that white people think they're fine with God? Because we've allowed spiritual leaders to allow them to think they're okay with God. If you're not already depressed, we still have Judges 18 to go through. We have disgraced religion at home. We have disgraced religion and leadership. And you got to know, if the homes of God are a mess and the leaders of God are a mess, that's going to have an impact on culture. Am I right? We have to know that. Let's keep going. Judges 18 In those days, there was no king of Israel. Again, that is not a political statement. That is a spiritual statement. There's no king in Israel. In those days, the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in. For until that day, an inheritance had not been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. In their day, there's no king. Everyone turned their back on God and the poor Danites. We feel bad for the Danites. Oh, those poor Danites. That whole tribe of Dan, they don't have a home. And there's no one to give them a home and we feel bad for them. So if you're feeling sorry for the Danites, don't. Remember Judges 1, God says, hey, go in, take the land. I'm gonna go before you. And if you remember back in Judges 1 and 2, there are a number of nations who out of a lack of faith and obedience, they didn't, take what God gave them. Tribe of Dan's one of those. They didn't obey what God gave them to do, and as a result, they were homeless. Sure, have empathy, have compassion. They didn't do what God gave them to do. Let's keep going. Verse 2. So the sons of Dan sent from their family five men out of their whole number, valiant men from Zorah and Eshetol, to spy out the land and to search it. And they said to them, go search the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were near the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young man, the Levite, who turned aside there and said to them, who brought you here? What are you doing here? You're supposed to be in Shiloh. That's what they're saying. What are you doing here? You're supposed to be over there. He said to them, thus and so has Micah done to me, and he's hired me, and I've become his priest. They said to him, inquire of God, please. Wow, that's great. Inquire of God then, priest, that we may know whether our way in which we're going will be prosperous. Hey, should we go conquer the land that God gave us that we failed to do? Or do you think it's okay if we just go find something easier? The priest said to them, verse 6, go in peace. Your way in which you are going 
has God's approval. So here's what happens. So you have a wayward home, a disgraced home, religion at home, at raised Micah. Micah then gets his own spiritual advisor, his priest. So now you have disgraced homes and disgraced leaders. And now this wayward tribe of Dan come up and say, wow, my luck. There's a man of God. Hey, is God okay with what I'm doing? Man of God doesn't even know what they're doing. He says, yeah, God's great. God's going to be completely happy with what you're doing. Keep going. Verse 7, and the five men departed, came to Laish, saw the people, and were living in security after the manner of the Sidians, quiet and secure. There was no ruler humiliating them for anything in the land. They were far from the Sidians and had no dealings with anyone. When they came back to their brothers at Zorah and Eshetol, their brothers said to them, what do you report? They said, arise, let's go up and against them. We have seen the land, and behold, surprise, it's very good. And will you sit still? Do not delay to go to enter to possess the land. When you enter, you will come to a secure people with a spacious land. Look at this. See this? For God has given it into your hand. A place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. No, we didn't. God said to go to your inheritance that you didn't do. But the people see this easier path. Hey, there's this easier place. It's this better place. It's going to be totally better for us. I know God gave us that. There's bad guys over there. That's going to be hard. Let's go conquer these people. Oh, and by the way, we saw a priest. He said God's okay with it. Do you see how all of this is connecting? It all began with this disgraced religion at home. It seeped into this religious leader. And now this disgraced home and disgraced leader is now impacting an entire tribe. And now this tribe in the midst of their rebellion and disobedience are going on their own path. Man, how easy it is for just one crazy leader with a pastor, priest, or leader card to infect so many people. And I think that's why Paul gave this passage in Galatians 1, 6 through 9. When he's talking about the gospel, look at what he said. Galatians 1, 6. He says, I'm amazed you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. And I'm shocked how easy it is to just send you guys off in a weird direction for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As I've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Listen, if God's authority is ignored, our desires and our own will become our guide. If the authority of God is ignored, our own desires and our own will become our guide. I ask you, who's your guide? Who guides you? Or what guides you? Before you answer that question, I want you to carefully consider it in light of the rest of this passage. Look at the impact that came 
from the disgraced home, disgraced leader. Now a disgraced culture. Look at this, verse 11. Then from the family of the Danites, from Zorah and from Eshetol, 600 men armed with weapons of war set out. They went up, camped at karath Jerim in Judah. Therefore they called that place uh, Mahanadarim. To this day, behold, it is west of karath Jerim. They passed from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Let's keep reading. Then the five men who went to spy out the country of Leish said to their kinsmen, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod, household idols, and graven images, and a molten image? Now therefore consider what you should do. They turned aside there, came to the house of the young man, the Levite, to the house of Micah, asked him his welfare. The 600 armed men, armed with weapons of war, who were the sons of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Now the five who went out to spy the land went up, entered there, took all of Micah's graven images as he fought his household idols and the molten image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with 600 men armed with weapons of war. When these went into Micah's house and took the graven image, he fought the household idols and the molten image, the priest said, what are you doing? They said, shh, be silent. Put your hand over your mouth, come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be the priest to a man, to the house of one man, or a priest to a tribe of a family of Israel? Hey, we're bigger. We're better, we're stronger. The priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and household idols, a graven image, and went among the people. Hey, this, I got a raise. This is great. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Let's keep going. And they turned and departed and put the little ones and the livestock and the valuables in front of them. When they had gone some distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house assembled and overtook the sons of Dan. They cried to the sons of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, what's the matter with you? Hey, why are you coming after us? Verse 24, Micah said, you've taken my gods. You've taken my priest. And you've gone away. What do I have? You've taken all my fake gods. You've taken my priest. All I'm left with is my family and God himself. You've left me with nothing. <laughs> so how can you say, what's the matter with you? The sons of Dan said to him, don't let your voice be heard among us or else fierce men will fall upon you and you will lose your life with the lives of your household. So the sons of Dan went on their way and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. And they took what Micah had made the priest who had belonged to him and came to leash to a people quiet and secure, struck them with the edge of the sword, burned the city with fire. There was no one to deliver them because it was far from Sidon. They had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley which is near Beth Rehob. And they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And look at the consequences. What began with a, a home with disgraced religion mixed with Disgraced religion within leadership ended up with this crazy culture of stealing other people's stuff. The strong survive, the weak fail. They end up going over this city, an entire city killed. An entire city, everyone put to death. They burn the city to the ground, they rebuild it. Verse 29, they called the city name of the city Dan after the name of Dan their father who was born in Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. The sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image. 
Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. Two saddest parts of the story for me. Number one, within two generations. We went from having God as our God to conquering cities and building it on the foundation of an idol. The second thing that's so sad to me is that according to this passage, the city that they established, the city of Dan, with the foundation of an idol built on all of that disgrace, continued that way until the destruction of God generations later. The account of Micah, Jonathan, and Danites, these two chapters is more than a history lesson. It's a window into the wickedness of the human heart and the hopelessness of human society without God. I love how Warren Wearsby, he's one of my favorite old preachers, how he, what he said about this passage. Look what he said. He says, the home, the ministry, and society are disintegrating before our eyes. And people don't want to hear the truth. But whatever they wanted or whether they wanted or not, the world must be told that Jesus Christ died for lost sinners, that the power of Christ can transform hearts, homes, churches, and society if people only trust him. Here's my question for you. Where do you need to fix religion in your life? Maybe some of you are like, Brian, I gotta be honest, my home, my home is not a reflection of my faith. Brian, I'm not walking with the Lord. I'm not intentionally training my children. You know, Brian, I, I am doing, I'm living my life on my own terms, my own morality, setting my own guidelines. Maybe for you, it's Brian, I, I do have disgraced religion at home. Maybe others of you need to rethink the voices of spiritual guidance in your life. The Bible tells us that you as believers should be checking your spiritual leaders with the truth of God. Maybe for some of you it's time to hold your spiritual leaders accountable. Raise them to the standard that God has called them to. Maybe some of you is to recognize that we have a disgraced culture. But my guess is it might be rooted in our broken homes and our broken churches. I don't believe the solution to the situation in Judges, I don't believe the solution to the situation in our lives is to get a Christian president 
or a certain political party. It's not based on lower gas prices or where you live. What we see in Judges, what God is giving us is a window into our own life. It's a window into our own soul. Our hope rests in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, the God of salvation. And I've told you, I do not believe God has abandoned us in California, the Chino Valley. But I do believe that he's given us a solution to, his, to our problem. Let's restore our homes. Put God first in our lives and in our homes. Let's revive all churches. Our churches are beacons of truth, grace, compassion, where people can come and hear the voice of God and leave in confidence that they're not the only one who heard it. And let's see what that does to disgrace culture. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful again for your word. I'm grateful that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing through the crusty exteriors of our critical lives. God, it cuts through the cares and concerns of our daily existence. God, your word through your spirit, it has that ability to just open our eyes and allow us to see your path more clearly. So God, I pray. I pray for our church here. I pray for our homes, God, that you would restore our faith to you. God, I pray for marriages that you'd bind them close together or close to you. God, may those marriages be healed and revived so they'd be a reflection of your glory to their children. God, I pray for children, the youth, young adults, regardless of their homes, God, I pray that you would empower them and renew them, allow them to begin their lives, to grow their lives in dedication, devotion to you. God, we like to blame culture for the destruction of our society. We love to blame public schools and political parties. But God, maybe it's time for us to take responsibility for our own homes. God, we do pray for churches, especially the 11 other churches that we partner with here in the Chino Valley. God, may you revive your church. May you strengthen them. Give them resolve and faith and courage as they seek to be a bright reflection of your glory in the midst of a disgraced culture. And God, may you use us, your church, your bride, the body of Christ. God, may you use us to transform the Chino Valley in your image.
for your glory. God, I pray for people today. God, may you give them one step. One step they can take to begin to rebuild their life, their home, their church, and their culture for your glory. Pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.